Welcome to the Air Health, Our Health podcast. I'm Erica, a lung and ICU doctor. Every day in my ICU and clinic, I see patients who are there from breathing unhealthy air. And I started Air Health, Our Health to focus more upstream on the importance of healthy air for healthy people and healthy economies. Thanks for joining me. Welcome back to season four of the Air Health, Our Health podcast. It's hard to believe we are already here. Sadly, as is increasingly common, the summer was marked by devastating fire events. I think we have all been horrified by witnessing what has occurred in Maui, and many throughout North America felt the significant toll of the Canadian wildfires over this past summer. As I record this, I have all my HEPA filters running, and the air outside yesterday was rated as unhealthy as wildfires burn again in my state. I find myself, again, with the frequent daily habit of checking the air quality before deciding where and when the kids should have active play, and also checking the wildfire map to find out how close one is to my own community. I have vivid memories of the heavy wildfires in my area in 2020, in which the air quality outside was beyond the hazard index, and I was with my three kids indoors and wondering how to keep them safe. We often have wildfires affecting our air quality, but I also know it's important for the kids to be outside playing and not inside watching tablets or yelling at me about how bored they are. (laughs) How do we decide when to let our kids outside when the air quality is poor? Where do we have them play? What happens at school? I worry about ensuring clean air in my own home, but my kids spend eight to 10 hours per day breathing air at their school. How do I know if it's safe? Is anyone monitoring it? What are the air quality risks at school and in school activities? Fortunately, today, I am joined by a lung doctor for kids who also has three young kids herself. She also suffers from asthma and knows what it is like to have air quality affect her. Her research and work is geared to answering all these questions. So I am delighted to kick off season four of the Air Health, Our Health podcast with this super important back to school episode about the air quality where our kids spend a large amount of their days in school. Today, I am joined by Dr. Stephanie Levinsky-Desir, who is Chief of the Pediatric Pulmonary Division at Columbia University and cares for patients and conducts research in the Department of Pediatrics and the Department of Environmental Health Sciences at Columbia's Mailman School of Public Health. After training in general pediatrics at the Children's Hospital of Montefiore in the Social Pediatrics Program, she completed her Pediatric Pulmonary Fellowship at New York Presbyterian Hospital, Columbia. Her multidisciplinary and collaborative research is focused on understanding how environmental factors impact children with asthma, particularly in urban and minority communities. Her current work is funded by the National Institutes of Health, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, and the Health Effects Institute. She recently served on the EPA's Clean Air Act Scientific Advisory Committee as a member of the Particulate Matter Panel in 2021. She is an elected member of the Society for Pediatric Research and in 2019 was recognized by the journal Pediatric Research for the Early Career Investigator Spotlight. She is also the recipient of the 2019 American Society for Clinical Investigation Young Physician Scientist Award and the 2021 Robert B. Mellon's MD Outstanding Achievement Award from the Pediatric Assembly of the American Thoracic Society. She is also a spokesperson for the American Lung Association. Welcome to the Air Health, Our Health podcast. It's great to be here. So first, why don't you share a bit about your journey to becoming a pediatric lung doctor and how you became interested in the impact of air pollution on kids? So I am one of those people who knew that I wanted to be a pediatrician pretty early on in my life. As a matter of fact, my mother tells the story of when I was five and how I told her that I'm going to be a doctor one day. And I think it was because as a young child, I spent a lot of time in emergency departments and clinics with symptoms from asthma. And so I think that early exposure to 
sort of the healthcare system inspired me to move towards a, an ultimate career in healthcare. But I wasn't, even though I suffered from asthma, I didn't realize I was going to ultimately be an asthma doctor. It wasn't until my residency training in the social pediatrics program uh, at the Children's Hospital at Montefiore, where I, I really sort of leaned into this idea that there, there's some work that could be done and that I could help with that work um, in pediatric pulmonology. So part of our training program in social pediatrics, it's, it's really focused around training clinicians to understand the social and political and environmental conditions in which children grow up and that impact their health. And so we did a lot of um, activities, including a walking tour of the South Bronx. And, you know, if you're familiar with the South Bronx of New York City, you may know that it's one of the poorest regions in the country. It also suffers from a disproportionately high prevalence of asthma and, and pretty severe asthma. So walking around in the neighborhoods where the children from my clinic lived in, it became clear to me that part of the problem is poor air quality in these regions. There are more waste transfer stations that come through communities like the South Bronx than most of New York City. And as a result of that, there was a significant burden of diesel traffic exposure to pollutants. And I think it was this sort of aha clicking moment that, you know, kids who live in these neighborhoods, they do not have a say in sort of the environment that's around them and the air that they breathe, but yet it affects them in so many ways. It's the reason why these kids end up in the emergency rooms and in hospitals and on medications for asthma chronically. And so I took that as an opportunity to think about, you know, what can I do um, to be somewhat help solve some of these issues? And that led to my fellowship training in pediatric pulmonology and, and the rest is history, I guess. <laughs> Thank you. Who do we know about air pollution in communities and who is most affected by it? That's a really important point that not everybody gets exposed to the same degree of environmental air pollution. While it is somewhat ubiquitous, then there are tons of different sources of air pollution. It does affect communities differently. And so here in New York City, I think a large proportion of our population experiences air pollution through traffic sources. So as I mentioned, diesel trucks, garbage trucks and things like that, also cars, vehicular traffic. And, you know, in urban areas where there is a lot of traffic, that burden sort of is increased at the ground level. In other communities, it might be from industry, like um, industrial power plants that emit pollutants. In other parts of the country, it could be because of wildfires. So the sources of air pollution vary, and then certainly who gets exposed to which sources also varies. One thing that I think is super interesting and important to also acknowledge is there's a lot of recent evidence coming out that demonstrates that people of color and people from lower socioeconomic backgrounds are disproportionately burdened by environmental air pollution. And that often is due to locations where point sources of pollution exist. So when I talk about like power plants and industry, things like that, where are those within a community? Or when I talk about highways and street traffic and, and truck traffic, where are those highways being built? What neighborhoods and what communities are intersected with those traffic sources? And so oftentimes we see that those are communities where black and brown people live, or those are communities where lower income families live. So 
these families, these people end up bearing the disproportionate burden of air pollution exposure. And how does that air pollution affect children in particular? A lot of what brings me as a pulmonologist to this field is the influence of air pollution on respiratory health, particularly childhood asthma. When you think about who are the most vulnerable people to air pollution, they're the really young, they're people who have underlying medical conditions like asthma, um, they're the very old, people who spend a lot of time being physically active or working outdoors in outdoor environments. And so childhood asthma is a huge public health issue. And we know that air pollution exposure leads to reduced lung growth for children. And that potentially predisposes children to developing asthma once a child has a diagnosis of asthma air pollution exposure triggers exacerbations of asthma. So we talk about asthma attacks when you all of a sudden are having difficulty breathing. An asthma attack can be triggered by exposure to environmental pollutants. Um, so those are some of the populations that, that really suffer the most when there is greater exposure to air pollution. And you've done research actually putting air pollution monitors on kids. Um, can you tell us about that and you know what it's shown and what surprised you? I think it's really interesting to be able to understand individual level exposures in addition to community level exposures. So there are lots of different ways that we can study the influence of air pollution on the lungs and the health of children in our community. So one way is to have a child wear a monitor and actually measure every minute or every five minute what these kids are exposed to. And so some of the studies that I've done have really tried to tease out not just overall how much air pollution a child is exposed to, but what periods of time throughout the course of a day might a child have greater or less exposure to air pollution? Or what specific environments might a child have greater or less exposure? Is it when they're outside more so than when they're inside? Is it when they're commuting to and from school or when they're sleeping at night in their beds? And I think the overall goal of that type of really precise measurement of um, air pollution concentrations it, at the individual level is to really start to tease out, well, where can we actually make a change? Where are the periods of time where we might get the most bang for our buck? So we published a paper recently where we showed that air pollution in the school environment was linked to airway inflammation in the lungs. And so the schools might be a location or a setting where we should really focus in and hone in on reducing air pollution exposure because tons of kids spend tons of time in school every day. And so potentially we can have greater bang for our buck in that specific environment. Absolutely. And, you know, schools also kind of can fall victim to the smokestack effect, too, where it's like that's the area where there's a bunch of land and it's kind of cheap. And so they can actually be by high emitting sources. You know, we have a middle school here in Portland that's 50 feet from the freeway. And, you know, to your point in the historic part of the black community of Portland. And so it's just you think about, you know, you might be sending your kid off to school where the air quality may not be great. And so if we can at least have them breathing clean air for most of the day, hopefully that'll help. Exactly right. We even have a school here in New York City, and I have show a picture of this sometimes when I give talks that's literally sitting on top of a highway. And so you think about what are those poor children breathing every day while they're in the classroom? And even more so when you think about um, other potential interventions there that are specifically targeted at schools, what are the ventilation systems within the classrooms? Is there air conditioning or are we relying on opening windows and really just letting all of that bad air into 
to the classrooms. So these are many of the things we can think about if we really focus in our interventions on this specific environment, teasing out which environments have the greater risk, help us to design interventions that can have more impact. And one thing I was really excited to talk to you about is, you know, I have three young kids and we're kind of in wildfire country. We also have issues with diesel exposure, the way our city is situated. But, you know, you're always kind of torn with like, what do we do with exercise, right? You know, we want kids to exercise, but it's so hard as a parent to know what to do with the air quality index, right? Like we want them to get out and exercise. We know that's good for them, but maybe we don't want them to get too much pollution exposure. So how do you balance that? Like, what is your research shown or what do you do as a lung doctor for kids? Such an important point and one that we've really tried to tease out in some of the research that we're doing is this idea of the combined effect of being physically active in polluted environments. So if you think about it, when you're exercising, you take deeper breaths and you breathe quicker, right? And so whatever air is surrounding you, more of that is getting into your lungs, right? And so that's why exercising in high polluted environments is actually pretty harmful overall for children. And we've shown that in some of our work that kids who in general are physically active, have better lungs and, and less inflammation in their lungs. But kids who have really high exposure to air pollutants, even though they're active, they don't really see that sort of protective or beneficial effect of being physically active because potentially they're inhaling more pollutant particles. So I think it's super important, honestly, first and foremost, to be aware. I'm glad you brought up the air quality index because I think it's such a great public health intervention that now we all can just pick up our cell phones and look at the weather app and we can see like, what is the air quality index today? And that can help inform decisions about should we be exercising indoors? Maybe we should be, or is it safe enough to exercise outdoors today? You know, the wildfire question is so important and relevant. And I think as we're seeing with climate change, more and more wildfires happening every year, I think it really is giving us like a sort of disadvantage in terms of not just healthy air to breathe at rest, but you know, opportunities to be engaged in physical activity outdoors. And I think it's important to just be careful and be mindful that these can trigger symptoms of asthma, but they can also trigger cough and respiratory symptoms in people who don't have asthma. So do you think schools and athletic, you know, districts should be monitoring the AQI and change guidance on whether, you know, recess is indoors or outdoors or whether sporting events should be held? I mean, do we know enough to give concrete advice about that? Or is it kind of more of a you know, know your kid and maybe you keep them out of sports one day sort of thing. The EPA has a flag program that I'm not clear on how well it's implemented in schools across the country, but it's specifically designed for this question that you asked, which is how do we determine when is it a safe time for kids to be playing outdoors? And those schools that do actually follow along with the EPA's um, uh, flag program, they look at air quality index daily and just make decisions about outdoor recess based on what the air quality index is. And we do know, we do have enough evidence to demonstrate that this can have an influence on reducing lung related issues like asthma attacks and, and things like that. So I definitely think we should be paying attention to this. I definitely think we should be training our school officials to be able to recognize this and to make decisions based on this because it truly does impact our children. And what are the top steps you think parents and communities can take in general to help protect kids at school from air pollution? So the idea of just like using your cell phone, looking at the air quality data, actually paying attention to school, 
most phones, it's all the way at the end of the weather app. You can see like a, a gradient from green, meaning good, all the way up to red, meaning hazardous. Um, so just paying attention to that and making individual level decisions about you and your family, about what you should, how you should plan your days based on what the air quality is like. I talk also about the schools and, and they should also be sort of informed and we should train them to make sure that they understand. Interestingly enough, you know, parents have a lot of power and say in what teachers and school representatives do. And so advocating to your school, particularly if you have a child who has asthma or some sort of respiratory illness, to say, hey, these data exist, this flag program exists, we should be paying attention, we should be using this, I think is super important. Another area that we hadn't talked about yet is um, school buses, right, and idling laws. So this is a huge thing. If you have a line of school buses, especially if they're not using clean air technology, so they're running on diesel fuel and they're lined up in front of a school and they're running, think about what the air quality is like outside of that school during pickup time. So there are idling laws that exist for a reason where you're supposed to turn off the engine when you're waiting for more than a short period of time. And so, you know, knocking on the window of the bus driver and saying, hey, can you turn off your engine? It's just one way a parent can actually make a difference there, you know, and being mindful of that and actually speaking out on that. And then even sort of on a, on a larger scale, I think the more we know about these kinds of issues and how they impact our communities and our children, the onus is on us to speak up and speak out about these things. So here I am speaking to you. You've created a podcast to really get the message out there to people who you know, are inspired by this and want to learn more using platforms like social media, using platforms like reaching out to city officials and things that can actually move the needle on legislation that could improve overall air quality. We all have a voice, we all have a, a story that can be told. And I think as we come together and we talk about these issues more together, that's where we're gonna get traction sort of moving things. There are lots of laws out there that are really aimed at protecting our health and protecting the air that we breathe, but it's our job to really stand up and speak out to make sure that they are enforced. Absolutely. And I think the community voice is important because a lot of the times you have, you know, very well-meaning at times, like industry voices. Again, I try to enter into it with the idea that probably people are all well-meaning. <laughs> Let's prioritize health and wellness. And so having those parent voices and community voices in policymakers' ears, along with trucking companies, is also very important. True, because, right, with it, industry is powerful because they're backed by, you know, they're organized and they're backed by money and they're driven by, you know, the their economical sort of positions, but that voice needs to be balanced. It really does. People like us need to also be in those rooms speaking out. So I completely agree with you. And so you served on the Environmental Protection Agency's Clean Air Act Scientific Advisory Committee while they were reconsidering the particulate matter standards to a potentially a more protective standard for health. Can you talk about that and the kind of the process a little bit and where you think the standard should be? I, I'm glad you brought that up because it leads from what we were talking about, about like, how can we advocate on the policy level to really influence change? And if you had asked me a decade ago, when I was first deciding to be a pediatric pulmonologist, you know, would I be serving on some sort of EPA advisory panel? I would have laughed at you, but, you know, I was presented with an opportunity to apply for a position to be on a panel with 
a bunch of other researchers, scientists, most of whom study air pollution specifically. I just so happen to be the only pediatrician who was on this advisory panel and one of three clinicians who were on that panel. And really the way it works is that the Environmental Protection Agency's job is to evaluate the science and evaluate the laws and make sure that our laws are protecting the citizens of this country. And so every few years, the administrator of the EPA decides what he's going to you know, use the EPA's resources to review. And they decided in 2021 that they wanted to revisit the air quality standard for particulate matter. And that consisted of EPA officials reviewing all of the scientific literature that related to particulate matter and determining what does the science say. And then they convene a panel of scientific experts to review what the EPA sort of summarized in terms of their take of the scientific literature and to give a recommendation for where do we think the air quality standard should live based on the scientific literature. Obviously, science is happening all the time. Things are changing all the time. So we constantly have to revisit these things. And so what we did was reviewed many, many long, long documents that reviewed the scientific evidence. Currently, the PM 2.5 standard, just to give you an example, is at a level of 12 micrograms per cubic meter. And our recommendation out of the KSAC panel was that it should be lowered from that. And that's not protective enough for Americans. So we give that recommendation to the EPA administrator as the KSAC panel. And then they use that information and make a determination. So I'm happy to say that you know, uh, in January of this year, the EPA came out with their statement that they would like to consider reducing that standard from 12 to between 9 and 10. And now it's in a period where the public is able to sort of weigh in and give their opinions and offer sort of rebuttals as to why they think it should or should not be reduced. And then ultimately they'll make a decision. So for me, it's super proud moment to sort of be involved in, in something that honestly is so much bigger than me as an individual, but as a collective voice to be able to really use my expertise as a scientist and as a clinician to evaluate what the science is telling us about where air standard, clean air standards should be and to help advocate for that. Absolutely. You know, I should note the American Thoracic Society recommends a standard of eight. So I think we're all, a lot of us on the Environmental Health Policy Committee are advocating as strongly as we can for the nine side of that spectrum, I guess, as inching its way <laughs> closer to hopefully a more healthy standard. Well, I want to thank you so much for your time and your patient care and your scientific work. I have three young kids and I think all pediatricians walk on water and are amazing people. Is there anything else you would like to add? Thank you so much. I also have three young kids. And so I can <laughs> attest to how, how important it is to really be in a position to advocate for them, as well as all of the children that I care for in my clinic, um, and all of the children that my, my science and my research sort of touches. And I particularly am, you know, dedicated towards improving air quality, not just for everyone, but for those children who are disproportionately exposed. So a lot of the work that I do focuses or is centered on children who are marginalized in our society and our community. And I think, you know, just going back to what brought me to this field, I think it's really important for us to recognize as adults 
as professionals, as people who have a voice, as people who have experienced life experience, that it is our duty and our obligation really to speak up and speak out so that we can improve the air quality in the state of our country for our children and future generations. So I thank you for giving me the opportunity to share a little bit of my story and my work with you. Yes, well, thank you very much. Dr. Lewinsky Desir's work is so important. She is working to answer the hardest questions that face all of us as parents and communities. As parents, we all want our children to exercise. It is so distressing to learn that in kids who are breathing unhealthy air, the health benefits of exercise may be lost compared to kids who have the ability to exercise in clean air. Since kids may have significant exposure to unhealthy air at school, it is very important that they spend their school day breathing healthy air. School is often where they do their most active play, running around, on playgrounds, at recess, and more. With climate change, we will continue to have catastrophic wildfire events. Hopefully, we will ensure our communities have clean air refuges and strong resiliency and mitigation plans. It is also important to decrease the chronic toll of air pollution so that we have fewer members of our communities at risk for illness when sudden severe air quality events occur. I also hope we will limit our greenhouse gas emissions so future children do not have to face the events that we have seen unfold in Maui and in other places. It is hard not to feel helpless as an individual in the face of such large problems and devastating events, but it is important to keep hope and remember to take action. So what can you do? First, download the airnow.gov app if you haven't yet. Familiarize yourself with the air quality index and who is at risk. Second, find out whether your school follows the EPA flag program. If not, consider discussing with your school how to start a flag program. You can obtain resources and information at airnow.gov forward slash air quality flag program. Third, the EPA offers significant educational materials geared for kids as well. You can find out more about these resources at airnow.gov, including videos in Spanish and English about air quality. Our climate is changing and leading to increased wildfire smoke events. Do what you can in your community to address climate change and help mitigation plans, such as plans for clean indoor air in schools, homes, workplaces, and more. You can also learn about the Air Quality Index from Dr. Rosser in the episode What's in an Index and about PM2.5 from What's in a Standard with Dr. Costa. These are both available in Season 2 of the podcast. You can learn more about ozone, the other component of the Air Quality Index, from the Money and Lives episode from last season. Finally, consider a donation to the American Lung Association, who, in addition to supporting those with lung disease, is constantly fighting for clean air for all. We're coming to the end of the podcast. For more information about the importance of healthy air, please visit airhealthourhealth.org and follow on Instagram and Facebook. Remember, if you do nothing else, don't light things on fire and breathe them into your lungs. This applies to tobacco, diesel fuel, forests, and more. Thanks for joining me today. I am a full-time physician and not an epidemiologist or public health expert. This podcast is for your education and entertainment, but should not be interpreted as individual medical advice. Please consult with your own healthcare team to determine what is right for your health. Thank you and stay safe.